Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. We have a packed, packed show for you today. We're going to talk about some FA Cup and about a resilient Arsenal. Uh, Nathan Strauss is back with us on the podcast. We're being absent for our last pod, taking quickly. And we're going to get his thoughts on Manchester City's great escape from their UEFA ban and also them falling at the hands of Arsenal in the FA Cup and not defending their crown. We're also going to talk about some promotion stories from the championship a historic club is going to be back amongst the premier league elite and we're also going to break down caleb rhodes's thoughts about barcelona surrendering the league title to real madrid and real madrid picking up their 34th la liga crown this past week gents we have to pick up with the game that we just saw between arsenal and manchester city nathan strauss if i had told you that in the year of our lord 2020 Arsenal Football Club would have beaten Liverpool and Manchester City back-to-back in the same week, what would you have said? I think what would have surprised me even more is if you had told me that we would we would have lost the Spurs three days before that Liverpool game. I mean, really, I think this week showed what Mikel Arteta can do and also just how far away this Arsenal squad is from really competing with Liverpool and Man City. Obviously, I think the result is great. And being able to beat a team like City and a team like Liverpool, who are so clearly above us in terms of uh, the depth of their squad and the talent in their squad is excellent. What it really does is I think it gives me hope. And I think it gives the players hope. It's clear that Arsenal played with much more confidence today, knowing that the game plan that they had used to beat Liverpool on Wednesday might just work against City today. And work it did. First of all, I'd like to thank Nick for that nice monologue to get the show going. That was really nice. But yeah, I think this game was this game was really interesting because obviously you have Arteta returning to Manchester City. But really, I think this is the week where Guardiola became a villain in world soccer because after he got away with the UEFA ban, he was like, other teams need to apologize to me. And of course, Mourinho then got to banter with him a little bit and troll him, which was excellent. And I think it's always weird when I, I find myself agreeing more with Mourinho than I do with Pep Guardiola. So that's always strange. But now Man City are in like a, a strange position where they might only win the League Cup this year. Um, and I think after all of this, like talking the talk that Guardiola has done, he actually hasn't really been able to match it um, on the pitch, at least recently. And I think he made some weird decisions today. I mean, I understand like starting David Silva because like this is probably his last FA Cup semifinal, but he didn't perform. Jesus didn't perform. He didn't even bring Bernardo Silva off the bench. I don't know. It was just a bad setup. And despite the fact that they roundly outpossessed, outpassed, and outshot Arsenal, it was just a very off Man City performance, epitomized by the fact that David Luiz looked excellent at the back. And at least according to who scored, was even the man of the match. That's a pretty stark contrast to the last game that Louise played against City, which was probably the worst game that he has played in an Arsenal shirt, if not in his entire career. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, Arsenal had four shots on goal, the Man City's one. Even in the Liverpool game, you know, Liverpool had 24 total shots. Like, again, I do think you're right in that Pep has really gone full heel in the past five or six days. 
Dude, the pep heel turn is certainly complete. He dropped a uh, epic heel promo, villainous promo, following <laughs> Man City getting off the ban. And the fact that he came out and said that teams such as Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal, Tottenham, Mourinho and Klopp need to apologize to him, Caleb. It's just, you're absolutely right. He, he's turned himself into the villain of world soccer. And I fully understand wanting to come out and defend your club. But I think there's a point where it's crossing the line and becoming just a bit arrogant. And I think we've seen a few times in his career that petulant side of Pep Guardiola come out at times when he feels like his back is up against the wall. The most stark time I believe we saw that was in, oddly enough, in the MLS All-Star game way back in like 2014, 2015, when he refused to shake the hands of Caleb Porter following some pretty uh, nasty challenges in that game. So I think we've seen like if Pep doesn't have it all his way, he can get a little bit arrogant, a little bit aggravated. And I think we saw that this week. Nathan, what did you make of Arteta's low block setup and defending so effectively narrowly inside the box you know it was almost 11 men all hands on deck and it just looked easy sweeping up man city's blunt attack yeah i mean i think it was definitely a kind of defensive performance that arsenal have not really put in throughout the years even going back to the wenger era but i thought the thing that really stood out to me about the low block was the same thing from wednesday's game against liverpool I think the players looked really committed. I think there was an, a, a little extra commitment, a little extra compete level they were bringing to the field. I thought uh, the willingness to step up and block shots and the communication were what made this sort of low block setup work. Obviously, defense is only half of what went right. I mean, the ability to be precise on the counterattack, knowing that you're going to get outpossessed. I mean, City ended up having five times more passes than we did. Arsenal were able to make a count. And fortunately, the lethal finishing ability of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang ended up proving the difference in sort of a, a more aggressive fashion than I think the goals on Wednesday did. City looked really toothless today. I was pleased that the, the low block was able to stay in play for as long as it did, especially because, well, I feel like most low block setups have, you know, two banks of four. We really had one bank of five and one bank of three which I think is something a little bit different that Arteta was uh, experimenting with. Caleb, Arsenal looked really confident playing out of the back today, but I think it's important to note that for their second goal, the one man keeping Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang onside was none other than the much maligned Benjamin Mendy. Uh, he was not great today. I think him and Riyad Mahrez were sort of the standouts for underperforming, at least in my opinion. I don't think they contributed much to the game at all. And I certainly think Pep needs to look at bringing in another left back and another attacker, certainly since the drop-off in quality between Sané and Mahrez is so wide. But what, what, what did you make of the way that A, Pep Guardiola set up today, and when they went down, their lack of offensive impetus to get back into the game? They certainly looked like they were sort of plotting out there. If you've listened to the pod at all, you know that I do not rate Ben Mendy in the least. And he really was incredibly poor today, both in terms of his positioning was completely out of sync with the rest of the defense. And especially for Abimeyang's second goal, for some reason, he was like guarding empty space at like the back post rather than trying to like cut across. And so I think he just lacks both the technical ability and the tactical awareness to keep up with the rest of this team. And that really set them off. Um, you know, I, today, watching this game and the highlights again, I couldn't help but think 
what if they had Leroy Sané on the bench? Absolutely. I, I also thought that as well. I was like, Riyad Mahrez really just isn't, in, isn't contributing much offensively except for wayward crosses. And I thought, what about like the directness and the incisive play of Leroy Sané? How would that have changed things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I just, I'm so confused looking at Guardiola's like substitutions, how he like didn't even seem to go for it at all. Right, like two of his three subs were Rodri and Fernandinho, both defensive midfielders. Phil Foden has been in good form, but I still think in a game like this, and when you have five subs or four, why not bring on Bernardo Silva, who he left on the bench? So it just felt like for whatever reason, Guardiola didn't really go for it. And for the first time, I think we've seen with this Man City team in a while, they seemed kind of like out of options. Or at least Guardiola played as if he didn't have anywhere to go. And you mentioned Leroy Sané. And I think there's an interesting connection to be made between Bayern and Pep Guardiola's career. And uh, when I was thinking about the ramifications of the FFP ruling uh, this week, or the CAS ruling this week, I was thinking about how weird Pep's comments sound when you think about the fact that the only major knock on his coaching career is that everywhere that he's gone and found success, it's been with massive clubs with massive budgets. He hasn't really faced the same struggles that even someone like Jose Mourinho had over the course of his career. And so it seemed weird to me that Pep would be really quite self-congratulatory about having sort of skirted this European ban when what it really did was shown a second light on how well he's been funded throughout his entire career. I mean, he really hasn't had any major bickerings with, you know, the board at Man City or even, you know, in the time that he spent at Barcelona or Bayern Munich. So I just thought, again, such a weird move from someone who is so highly regarded in terms of his tactics and and in management. I think it was also interesting that he said that he always needs good players. He said something to the effect of like, I need good players in order to succeed, which is true. You know, at an elite level, you need elite players. But he also said that he tried to sign Alexis Sanchez. He tried to sign Harry Maguire. And he wasn't able to get those deals across the line because they didn't have the money to do so, which also <laughs> Caleb is shedding a single tear <laughs> in the Zoom call right now. But uh, Caleb, obviously, we broke down and gave our raw reactions to Man City uh, escaping that two-year UEFA ban after a breach of FFP rules. You can listen to that on our po- our second episode of our Pod Taking Quickly series. I encourage you to do so to get our full thoughts on that. Uh, Nathan, you obviously couldn't be present for that. So what are your reactions to the Court of Arbitration for Sports ruling and their, your thoughts on Man City escaping escaping that would have been a crushing, crushing blow to Pep Guardiola and City? I mean, I think it shows everything that's wrong with FFP, despite the successes that I think it had. Because obviously, FFP was put in place to make sure primarily that small clubs wouldn't end up going into administration or going bankrupt by gambling their future and securing lines of credit to sign players that were outside of their capacity to sign. And I think, Caleb, you made a great point in that episode about the uh, the total revenue that clubs have generated to get out of that $1.9 billion of collective debt that was facing global football clubs in 2010. On the other hand, I do think this shows how structurally weak UEFA is in general. And the fact that even though UEFA can levy a fine, an independent arbiter like CAS can just overturn it willy-nilly uh, is is pretty shocking to me. Caleb, you've had a week to marinate with Man City in your brain. 
Pep Guardiola also came out and said in that feisty interview that the Man City board might not be particularly happy with him being 23 points behind Liverpool in the league title race. So simple question, where does Pep Guardiola and Man City go from here? I think Pep Guardiola is getting like really close to being found out, right? I mean, like he hasn't done particularly well in the Champions League pretty much since he left Barcelona. I mean, he hasn't won the Champions League since he left Barcelona. As I kind of alluded to, like this year, the team has like really underperformed. They're just not consistent at all. I mean, they had what? They've had nine losses in the league. Yes. Right? That's the stat. That's an Today was their 11th loss in all competitions. Once again, as a Barcelona fan, as someone who really like grew into my Barcelona fandom during those golden years of like 2009 to 2012 under Guardiola, like I have so much respect for him. But I do think that he's getting to the point where it's almost like a Darth Vader-like situation, right? Like, he has the Death Star. Sheik Mansour, Palpatine has given him the Death Star. And yet, you know he's going to lose, right? Like, And he'll make another Death Star. You can think of each Death Star as a club. Yeah, and then if that Death Star breaks, then he can make a Star Killer base. Yeah. And then if that Death Star breaks, he can make, like, an army of 50, <laughs> 50 <laughs> Star Destroyers with planet-destroying lasers on yeah. them. Oh, yeah, dude, my, commanded my other, by David Alaba. Right, my other, if only, if only. My other metaphor is in uh, what is it? In Guardians of Galaxy Two, the the villain who's like, <laughs> who's the planet ego, the planet ego. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just think he's 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 kind of like losing the plot a little bit, and I think he needs to, after his Manchester City tenure, needs to hit a reset. I really think he needs to win the Champions League for him not to be kind of like laughed at. Um, at the end of this year, right? Yeah, and and frankly, the way that City look right now, I think that the odds of them getting past Real Madrid are incredibly slim. And I, I will get to Real Madrid later on uh, in the show, but the fact that City are going to basically be underdogs for the rest of their run out in the Champions League is pretty poor, looking at their half of the bracket, um, because we now know the draw for the rest of the uh, the rest of the tournament, which will take place in August. I think it's entirely possible that, you know, yes, Pep Guardiola can point to his past success. At the end of the day, it is that Champions League trophy that's always eluded him. And really, semifinals and quarterfinals have always been his weakness. And again, in the FA Cup today, it was a semifinal that undid him. Just like last year in the quarterfinals of the Champions League, uh, he got undone again. So I do think you are right in that he is close to being found out, as you said. I think Guardiola just thinks that he's figured out soccer, like the riddle of soccer, to the point where he feels like he deserves success. And so the fact that like when success eludes him, it's like the world is wronging him or it's like a break. It's like a glitch in the system. And I do kind of have to contrast that with like the experience of a Liverpool where like they used to feel like they deserve success, but then they realize that you do have to earn it. And it took three decades, but they eventually earned it. And I just don't think Guardiola has any perspective like that anymore. I think he thinks he is this master tactician who's been given the perfect pieces. And because of that, and because he's such like an has such an aesthetic view of the sport, that he just deserves success. And I think that's just a dangerous combination. Like the the sense that he doesn't feel like he needs to work for something. And maybe Nick, you can speak to like that difference a little bit. Yeah, I mean, just the way that he was looking on the touchline today, he looked despondent. He was like sitting on the Gatorade containers, like looking into the distance. And you could see like in his soul, he didn't believe that Man City were going to get back into the game. And I think that was the scary thing. It was like there was no belief from him on the touchline. There was Arteta even in like the 95th minute. 
five minutes in the out of time was still barking instructions to his team, trying to get them across the finish line because it's like there needs to be that belief behind Arsenal rallying for a cause. And in this case, they rallied to overperform way above their standards in an organized way and beat this juggernaut in Man City. Pep Guardiola was very quiet. He wasn't saying anything to try and will his team back into the game like we've seen previously. He was sitting down both on the on the touchline. He was sitting on the Gatorade bins like I was talking about before. And then at the end of the game, he was just leaning up with his back against the wall far away from the pitch. So there was no sense of like him responding to adversity in ways that we've even seen him do so before with Barcelona. I remember with Barcelona that Iniesta goal to uh, get them to the Champions League final against Chelsea. He was on the touchline. He was pointing and screaming. He was directing traffic. And eventually, Barcelona found their way back into that game. Obviously, that was, what, like 10 years ago? So I think, like you said, time has eroded the Pep Guardiola that we have all come to love. And maybe he has just come to fall back and hide behind these corporate juggernauts that have backed him for the past 10 years. Dude, it's the Anakin transition. I don't mean to keep harping on the Star Wars (laughs) thing. But he was the chosen one. And I know Mourinho's are kind of already saying that, but, but Guardiola was the chosen one, or he was supposed to be. And, and look at him now. And then he went and joined the empire. He joined the empire. He really did. And by the empire, I mean the Etihad group. <laughs> 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 yeah. But lad, speaking of another man who likes to uh, sit on Gatorade containers, Marcelo Bielsa and the mighty Leeds United are going to be playing their football in the Premier League next season for the first time since 2004 when they were relegated. Uh, Leeds, obviously, we don't normally talk about championship soccer on this podcast, but we felt that it was important to bring this up because Leeds are such a historic club, not only in the annals of the English game, but also in the world game. And I think that is signified by the fact that Marcelo Bielsa himself has been in the championship toiling away for two years now trying to get Leeds United back up to the Premier League and he finally succeeded this week following West Brom's defeat to Huddersfield. Uh, Nathan, Leeds, massive historic club. Bielsa at the helm. By the looks of things, he has not invested a lot of money into this team. He's invested some funds here and there to get certain players that fit his style. So what have you made of Bielsa at Leeds? And what are you going to make of them in the Premier League, especially at such a huge, a huge club coming back into the top flight? I mean, Bielsa, first of all, congratulations to him. He has had such a storied career already and winning the league with Leeds, uh, as they have done, is certainly among his greatest accomplishments. And as a cherry on top, they are going to have to be given the guard of honor by Derby County in the last game week of the season next week. The team that beat them last year as they were endeavoring to get back into the Premier League via the playoff. Having watched a decent bit of Leeds this year, uh, mostly to keep track on Jack Harrison, they do play a pretty aesthetic brand of soccer, sort of reminiscent of how Newcastle played when they were in the championship. It seems like every year uh, there's one team that gets promoted from the championship that seems like it'll make an easier transition to Premier League life than the others. I do think that Leeds are that team this year, just as it was Newcastle, a few years ago, and Wolves as well. Uh, Bielsa's side is incredibly well-drilled. They create a lot of chances. And I do think the one area that they need to improve on, um, probably through the transfer market, is in finding a more clinical striker. They tried with John Kevin Augustin, who suffered two injuries on consecutive game weeks to rule him out for the rest of the season. They obviously had Eddie Nketiah on loan from Arsenal until January. 
And their leading scorer, Patrick Bamford, has 16 goals to lead the club. But at the same time, he's also missed more chances than anyone else in the entire championship. So I do think that if Leeds are able to bring in a Premier League quality striker, this is a team that could seriously contend, maybe not for, you know, top six or top seven, but certainly be a team that finishes, you know, in the mid table next year. Yeah, I certainly think that's true. I think it's a credit to Bielsa that he didn't need a Wolves situation where he felt like he needed to over overhaul the squad in its entirety. Obviously, Wolves brought a lot of big names and big money players into the championship in that season where they played probably the most attractive soccer that that division has ever seen. I think Marcelo, he's obviously had a very storied career and he's one of the most influential coaches in the game. Pochettino, Guardiola, several people credit their success to Bielsa. And I think what makes him so special is the fact that he's able, it's similar to Jurgen Klopp, and that he's able to get the most out of what he has currently. And I think that we've seen Leeds, who with a lot of the same players over the past couple of years, they haven't made it to that promotion place. I think he was able to get the most out of what was a fairly championship squad. And I think we'll see a similar effect to Sheffield United next season in the Prem, where they might play a bit above their level. Yeah, I mean, I think it bodes well for a team that definitely needs more attacking talent, that they are able to manage such a tactically intense setup. I mean, like we've seen lots of teams just have to like move on from Bielsa because they just can't put together a squad that works for him. And also he's a very temperamental human being. And so definitely we've seen his relationship sour. So I think it's it's good to see that he's been able to sort of find a place for two years at Leeds. The crazy thing though is he hasn't won a league title since when he managed Vela's Sarsfield and won the 1998 Clausura title. I'm in Argentina. So this has been, you know, as long a wait for him as well um, to sort of taste glory again. And it's good to see him make it back to a top division as like a stable manager, probably for the first time since he brought that excellent Bill Bow team in 2011-12 to the Europa League runner-up. So I I agree with Nathan that, you know, they definitely need to buy some more pieces um, but I do think that a settled Bielsa that has a team that buys into it can only mean well going forward. And Nick, I actually have a question for you. I know you have relatives who live in England and part of England's footballing lore seems to be this universal dislike of Leeds. They've been repeatedly voted uh, as the most hated club in England by English people. I was wondering, do you have any what, what is the explanation for that? And, and why does Leeds have this place of such intense dislike amongst fans of really all backgrounds? So Leeds play in Leeds, obviously. But the interesting thing about Leeds United is that they're the only club in Leeds. So everyone in the city backs Leeds. Actually, my cousin went to study in Leeds. But I think there's an immense sense of pride that stems way back to the 70s in the Don Revy area. Obviously, they had one of the most famous managers, Don Revy, coached the team way back in the day, all the way to winning the 1975 European Cup. And I think they've kept that mentality, that big club mentality, all the way through their struggles in the past couple of years, which I think is why they're a little bit loath. You know, it's, it might honestly, Nathan, be a little bit similar to why Arsenal are so despised. <laughs> it's just because they keep that, that big club boisterous swagger everywhere they go. And I think that's amplified by the fact that they're the only team in the city of Leeds, which is a pretty big city, to be honest. It's one of the biggest cities in England. And I think the fact that they have such an immense groundswell of support by being a one-club town, one-club city, 
I think that leads to their their swagger just a little bit. That leads. <laughs> that yeah. leads. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good yeah, one. it's really interesting. <clears throat> see, I think it's really interesting that we're starting to see a resurgence of some of these old names in soccer get back to relatively where they once were. I think the biggest case of this is Liverpool winning the title this season because you think about Liverpool being such a historic club in the 70s and 80s but lacking that success in the modern era of the game and they're just starting to turn that corner and I think it will take someone like Bielsa someone who can take leads by the scruff of the neck and someone who's such a historian of the game as well like Caleb said he was managing way back in the day at Villa Sarsfield and the man has a stadium named after him in Rosario Argentina so I think it will take someone like him, a big personality like him, to bring such a storied and historic club like Leeds back to prominence. And while we're on the topic of the championship, looking at some of the other teams that might go up next year, it looks like right now West Brom are in that second automatic promotion spot, a Slavon Bilic-led uh, West Ham team that uh, obviously Slavon Bilic, plenty of experience with sort of newly promoted teams. His last venture obviously didn't go too too well in the Premier League and just to tie things full circle to last week's episode the goaltender for West Bromwich Albion is none other than ex-Wigan goalie Ali Alhabsi who had those crazy performances in the uh in the FA Cup back in the day uh, so how old nice is Ali Alhabsi he's 40 years old now oh my god <laughs> wait is he one of those keepers that wears like sweatpants during the <laughs> 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 yeah I, if he just yeah. One last note on Leeds before we transition. If you haven't seen last season, obviously Bielsa went through that really horrendous spygate situation <laughs> where he was caught spying on Derby County. If you haven't but seen... But we're Patriots fans. We, we can get behind yeah. that. If you haven't seen the video where he comes out and he breaks down exactly like every team's tactics and he spent an entire press conference. He called an emergency press conference. Everyone thought he was going to resign from the Leeds job. And he essentially came out and said, I've been spying on every single opposition team for the entirety of my career. And he spent a tremendously long amount of time breaking down all the tactics from every single team in the championship based on awesome. information that he spied with. Like he, that he like based off the information that he gathered from spying on every single team. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. It was the greatest managerial moment of last season. And if you are if you're not familiar with the championship, Bielsa or Leeds, I suggest that you check that out in order to prime yourself for just how crazy his name is Aloko. So I think you need to check that out just to prime yourself for Bielsa and Leeds. I've I've one follow up question for you guys, kind of based off of Nick talking about seeing some of these like old storied clubs resuming prominence. Do you think as we head into the 2020s, we're seeing like a third? era of the Premier League so you have like the initial Prem being the the first the core teams then you have the 2000s 2010s which is like new money Prem Chelsea Man City um, and now do you think we're at a point where we're going to see like a collision of the new and the old I think that's a pretty fair assessment of of where things are at and I think it's actually interesting to relate that back to FFP because I think you know a lot of the reason why these old historic clubs went down especially in the instance of Portsmouth, of Pompey, uh, was poor financial mismanagement that was also caused by a lack of proper spending infrastructure. And so it's, I think it's really encouraging to see as new investors have picked up these clubs and as clubs have sort of 
transform themselves into real contenders for the championship title uh, and obviously promotion of the Premier League, that uh, that some of the old names are, are finding their way back. And of course, there, there were some big success stories in the last decade as well. You think about Swansea's extended stay in the Prem after being quite literally a penalty kick away from relegation out of League Two just four years before. Um, and obviously, of course, Southampton, Leicester as well. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see which of the uh, of the of the initial prem clubs do find their way back to prominence. I wonder, you know, will we see Blackburn Rovers back in the prem? No, 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 were... no, no, no. I think this all hinges on one thing, Caleb. I think this hinges on whether or not Saudi Arabia can get the Newcastle takeover <laughs> completed, <laughs> because then we'll literally be seeing a conflation of the old and the new in that instance. Well, the news today from Sky Sports is that the takeover is not going to be approved. It's not going to go through. I wouldn't is... count. I don't know, man. It'll all hinge on whether or not Saudi Arabia can get that takeover across the line. Because then literally you have an old team that has been begging for a resurgence in Newcastle. Like vocally so. So, so much vitriol and hatred against their owner, Mike Ashley. And if Saudi Arabia can come in, I know we all don't want this. But if they can come in with with like the vision, if they can come in with like the vision twenty thirty money, and revamp Newcastle, then that is literally like a conflation of the old history of the Premier League and the new era, like the post FFP era, if you want to call it the post Man City, Cass situation era of the Premier League. Yeah, and one more thing before we transition, I think obviously with these. With the promotion of these, you know, fabled clubs, there has to come a relegation as well. So I do think that, you know, it remains to be seen, but there will be some established Premier League team, whether it be a West Ham who've already flirted with a drop for a few years now, uh, in consecutive years, really, with a drop. One of these big Premier League teams, probably not a top six team, but one of them is going to end up getting relegated in the next decade. And it remains to be seen who that is, but we got to brace ourselves for when it happens. West, I feel like West Ham are much more likely just because I feel like their squad is just like all over the place. Yeah. And they're consistently underperforming too. And they can see they're, how much their transfers have been just terrible. Well, you can see how much effort players like Mikel Antonio and oddly like Thomas Suchek, who is an arrival in the defensive midfield position in January was like, they're having to play at like such a high level just to keep them in the division. Or like Jared Bowen somehow like going from championship to like average attacking player in the Premier League, keeping out people like Felipe Anderson, who they bought for like 40 or 50 million. This, yeah, this, that team just, especially if they lose Declan Rice this summer. Can you imagine if they had to take that massive London stadium, the Olympic stadium into the championship at some point? Dude, it'd be so poetic. I mean, like, as I've, I think I've said this before on the pod, it's literally just like a metaphor for England, right? How so? Like, like it's like literally like the Brexit of of <laughs> no, it's like you have this beautiful oh, yeah, stadium yeah, yeah. and you are just electing to be bad. Right? Like Brexit was a choice. Well, I think the thing the crazy thing is that they want to put two steps forward and then they take one moise back, you know? It's like they sign players like Sebastian Hilaire, Felipe Anderson, Andre Yarmolenko from Borussia Dortmund, all these flair players to take them into a new age of being a top club in the Premier League. And then it all goes so poorly because they haven't executed this transition from being what was like a small historic Premier League team back from like the days of the tight, tightly knit community of the bowling ground 
taking that to a more global scale with the London Stadium, which I think they were hoping to do. And they haven't navigated that properly. So then they have to get managers in like David Moyes. They need a little more Burnley, a little less Samba. But gents, I think it's time to cast our gaze to Spain. Perhaps Caleb Rose doesn't want to do this, but uh, we do have to talk about Los Blancos, Real Madrid, penaltying their way (laughs) to a 34th La Liga trophy. Caleb, obviously you're our resident La Liga expert and also a Barcelona fan. Barcelona who lost to a 10-man Osasuna team at home and uh, Lionel Messi coming out with some pretty harsh words following the defeat. First of all, what do you make of La Liga going to Real Madrid? And what do you make of Barcelona capitulating once again? Yeah, so I'll talk about Madrid first, I guess. Credit to them, they got results. They won every game since the restart. They got results. They have so much depth that they can leave Bale on the bench to sleep and they can go to the La Liga title. They can try to do the penalty where you pass it off um, and score and they can fail at that and they could still win the La Liga title. So this is fully deserved and Barcelona also deserves nothing because we are crap. (laughs) You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, Barcelona are crap. You know, things are bad when my grandfather emails me asking why Barcelona are so bad. Uh, <laughs> what was the subject line of the email? Well, he was actually sending me a different article, but it was like it was like a PS, why are Barcelona bad? <laughs> I thought it was like an email in the subject line. It's like, Caleb, colon, question. Why are Barcelona so Yeah, so I mean, and then Messi after that terrible loss was... It was like one of his most forthright interviews ever. He talked about how Barcelona didn't want it, um, how it reflected their entire season. Remember, this game against Osasuna ended Barcelona's 42-game unbeaten run at the new Camp. Um, he talked about how the team had been inconsistent. He called it his own team weak, that didn't show intensity or desire, that had a bad defense. I mean, honestly, like if we didn't have Ter Stegen, we would have finished like third or fourth. He's been like that essential. And then he said, you know, we have to be self-critical, um, starting with the players, but across the whole club. And he said as well, like, we can't win the Champions League like this. We probably won't even beat Napoli, which I think is true, especially given our suspensions. So we've talked about it before, Barcelona are in pretty dire straits right now. Yeah, and I think you're going back to your Ter Stegen point. Uh, Barcelona fans actually voted him the team's player of the season over Messi, which might reflect how normalized we've become to the greatness of Messi himself. But again, a very, very uh, surprising Barcelona season from start to finish. And I think it's it's great to see Messi calling out his teammates like this and the club like this. I think it's something that, I don't know, I think that there's something to be said for how forceful he, he was in that statement. I think it really ring, it, it reads to me like a shot at Bartomeu and the board. Because as much as this is a reflection of, of the collective team's failures and, of course, the, the, the lack of effort from the players, as he says, it really comes down to squad building and the mentality at the club. And I think he knows as one of the, if not the most respected player in the dressing room and in world football, that his voice has significant sway. And so if he can persuade Bartomeu or the board or the socios to get back on track, I think this is him trying to do that. Corner kick fam, have you ever broken up with someone before? And you know, and you know, you write out all the reasons in your head and you formulate this great big poetic speech about why you're going to be breaking up with this person. 
and then you get in front of that person and then it all just comes running out it comes flowing out like a river all of these reasons why you've been dissatisfied for so long to me this sort of felt like Messi was laying the groundwork to break up with Barcelona and it might not be immediate it definitely won't be the summer but this feels like to me that Messi is laying the groundwork for his departure at at Barcelona and it might not be as ceremonious as we want it to be it might be a departure that is fed by frustration and a longing to do what he thinks is right for the club and feel like also he's been disrespected at the same time the past couple of years he said I've been fed up with the the loss at Roma I've been fed up with the loss at Liverpool and now if we don't course correct things we're going to lose to Napoli I feel like at the end of that part of his statement where he said they're losing patience because we're not giving them anything. I feel like you can also read I was. I am losing patience. I'm, I'm losing patience because yeah. you guys aren't giving me anything. And I totally agree that we are ending for, or we are heading towards a rather unceremonious breakup of Messi and Barcelona, which is so thoroughly upsetting. I mean, like, that, that's such a Madrid MO also. Like, think about how Madrid just, like, threw Ronaldo to Juventus and had, like, no going away party. Same with Casillas. Like, meanwhile, Barcelona, like, have huge going-away parties for Xavi, for Iniesta. And I think if the Messi era, which would also be the end of the Messi-Ronaldo era as well, ends with, like, a sour breakup with Barcelona, it would be so damaging to, like, the ethos of the club. Right. Um, I think that would be, that would be, like, the the, the final nail in the coffin from the underdog Barcelona team that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast with Pep Guardiola, the eyes of the global game and like the fandom were falling at their knees and praising this Barcelona team that was so youth driven. You know, it was what soccer was supposed to be about. It was this conflation of star talent and the youth players and growing players from the ground up players like Messi, Xavi, Iniesta, Pedro, Busquets, Piquet, Puyol, all of these Catalonian based players Valdez. Valdez. And now we're seeing like this is the Griezmann era of Barcelona. This is the Neymar era of Barcelona. I think an unceremonious departure of a frustrated Messi would firmly cement Barcelona as a corporation and not a club. Yeah. And it gets even worse when you consider the fact that Messi has these opt out clauses in his contract starting this summer and going on through the end of his contract in 2023, I believe. And when you look at how Barcelona are the most debt-laden club in the world. The fact that they're not going to even be able to cash in on their best player. Like at the end of the day, Real Madrid were able to get 108 million from Juventus for Ronaldo. Barcelona are going to be in much worse financial position than Real Madrid were that summer. And they're going to be without their talisman. And um, I, I really worry because I don't see what direction Barcelona can go in. Aside from, you know, basically selling off these first team assets and then investing heavily into the academy, I don't think there's necessarily an avenue of immediate success for the club. And seeing how they've performed over the last 12 years, I think it's going to be really, really hard to take if you're a Barcelona fan. Caleb, I saw a comparison somewhere this week. It was some article or some commenter said that Barcelona are in danger of becoming the new AC Milan post Messi. This club that was once historic for bringing across like domestic players who went on to do great things and have sort of fallen below 
what their standards were in the previous decade. Do you think that they're in danger of becoming an AC Milan type situation? I don't because I think that unlike Barcelona, AC Milan, as they were kind of winding down that Ancelotti era um, and like the early 2010s when they were still very good, they had a lot of like ownership changes. um, and, And I think unlike that Barcelona, although we still have to deal with like, you know, electing a head of the board and such, they don't have to deal with that, like changing ownership in the background, which I think is very disruptive. But I do agree that we could see a dip in Barcelona for like a few years, right? Like I could easily see us finishing third next year or fourth. And, and the one thing that gives me a little bit of solace is thinking about that Galacticos Real Madrid team from the early 2000s that finished fourth in La Liga one year. So it's not like this is totally without precedent. But I agree, we, we're a team that doesn't have a natural future. We don't have any players that are like entering their primes, right? That are like going to turn 27 next year and be leaders. We have a few young players like De Jong, Lenglet. I mean, Ansu Fati still is not the guy I'm going to look to to like carry this team. I think that's a bad idea. And I, I think honestly, more than, more than even saying this is like the Griezmann Barcelona, I think it's the Braithwaite transfer that shows you how far we've come. Yeah. Um, because I, I feel like in the past, if we had an issue, we would have been like, you know what, we'll bring in like a youth striker, see how it's going. And we've seen this a lot, like even past the Pedro era, we first saw like, uh, Teo and Cuenca, both of whom obviously fell off. Then we saw Sandro and Munir. Um, now we're seeing Fati, but I mean, like we, we sold, um, Abel Ruiz to Braga. Carlos Perez. Carlos Perez. I mean, like we had some players who like, you're like, wow, if only we kept them, they could have soaked up some minutes there. We didn't need to buy a 28-year-old Danish player that doesn't have a natural place in this team at all. And I think that shows you kind of how far we've fallen. So we've talked a lot about Barcelona and why they came in second. Caleb, you touched on the fact that Real Madrid have just been resilient in getting results. Is there anything besides that? Or is it just because they were the most resilient team and they have players like Sergio Ramos who can pick them up by the scruff of the neck and Benzema as well? senior professionals of the Real Madrid side who can pull them across the line. Obviously, we've seen Benzema have his best season in years. He hit the 20-goal mark in La Liga, um, along with like seven or eight assists. I I think we've seen their veterans really come through. And I think part of the reason we haven't seen perhaps as dynamic an offense as we would like this year is because their marquee signing, Eden Hazard, um, suffered a pretty bad injury and just hasn't been around that much. I think if if this Madrid team had been fully fit all year, which obviously isn't, you know, always a great thought experiment to do because players get injured and such, I think they would have run away with La Liga and it wouldn't have even been a question. I think they kind of did show a lot of resilience and res- resiliency um, because they couldn't have like a perfect or like a consistent offensive starting three. But their defense has been incredibly solid. Courtois has been worth it 100%. Um, and then their midfield has just been killer. Um, Modric has sort of maintained his level pretty well. And Valverde has been a revelation as a box-to-box midfielder. And that setup has given them just enough to eke out these one and two nil wins. What do you think that this win of the league means in terms of how Zinedine Zidane's reputation uh, grows? Because at the end of the day, he's come in now twice to Real Madrid and brought them to pretty great heights. And of course... Madrid, again, still have a chance to 
add on another Champions League trophy this year. I know this team might not be the most aesthetically pleasing team in offense, but how do we think Zidane has done navigating both the COVID circumstances and his squad this year? I think he's going to go down as one of the greatest managers of all time, crazily enough, because it's one of those things where I remember way back in 2016 and we were all like, oh, this might be a little bit too, it was like the prototype Lampard or Solskjaer or Arteta, if you will, where it's like, oh, this legend of the game, you know, we want to see him do well in Madrid, but just this might be like one step or two steps a little bit too early. I think what we've seen with Zidane is he's grown as a tactician over the past five years, but he came into the Madrid job with an excellent sense, Gareth Bill aside, of man management. I think that was something that we saw Benitez really flop with, Lopetegui the same, where Zidane, A, has the respect of, of all the players. He's one of the greatest players, perhaps, of all time. I think he's certainly up there. and He's an elite caliber player, uh, certainly an elite caliber headbutter. He is someone who's always going to command the respect of every single dressing room that he's in, but he's also someone who's had time to marinate his tactical setup with the best club in the world. Yes, and that is marinated that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we, when he came in, he played a 4-3-1-2. Now he plays a little bit of a 4-3-3 situation. So it's one of those things where he's gotten way, way better on the job, but he's been getting better as he's been winning. So I think he could go on to become potentially the greatest manager of all time, whether that's at Real Madrid or he fancies going somewhere else. But we certainly know now that since Madrid went begging to bring him back to the club, he now has all of the leverage in that relationship with Real Madrid. So it's one of those things where it's how long does he want to stay at the club? Because I certainly think that the longer he stays, the more Real Madrid are going to end up winning. Yeah, and just one last point about the, uh, the comparison between Madrid and Barcelona. Real Madrid have such promising young talents right now. And their, their sort of age definition of their squad is really quite excellent. They do have an aging Modric in midfield that, and of course, Benzema's getting up there too, but you look at, they have Eden Hazard in the prime of his career. They have Rafael Varane, who's somehow only 27 years old, one of the world's best defenders. Ferlan Mendy has looked excellent over the last like five games. You know, Ferlan Mendy uh, is, uh, he's no Benjamin Mendy, let me tell right, you. Right, exactly. And I mean, you look at even the players they have it on loan, Take Kubo has, was really the only bright yeah. spot. They got Vinicius and uh, Rodrigo, the two Brazilian wingers. And they have Rainier, who hasn't even made a first-team appearance yet, but they signed him for $30 million. I mean, you look at that and you think, wow, this Madrid team could really be posed for a few years of dominance while Barcelona might be struggling to get their things together. The one like limitation of this mid-team, I think, is really whether Benzema regresses. I mean, he is 32. He is their only consistent striker in the team. I mean, Luka Jovic has been poor this year. Mariano, he only showed up when he scored against Barcelona and El Clasico. Um, that's pretty much all we've seen of him. I don't know if he's been injured or whether they just kind of like trot him out. Um, they, they trotted him out for the Clasico. <laughs> it's like the ago. silver bullet. <laughs> yeah, he scored on like his first touch of the game too. Yeah, dude. But I mean, like that's what I mean with this Madrid team is like, I, like so many things like that have gone right for them. Like Mariano scoring with his first touch in months against Barcelona, Asensio coming back from injury and suddenly being like more prolific than he's ever been on like a per game basis in his career. But I do think that unless they find a long-term striker like an Mbappe 
Like they, they have so many wingers, right? They have Hazard, but then they also have Rodrigo Vinicius, Brahim Diaz. They they have a lot of they can bring on um Odegaard back from Sociedad because he's on loan there. They still have Hamas in the team. They still have Isco. Like they have so much depth across like every possible formulation of attacking, except for striker. Yeah, but you can totally see a situation where next year you have a Kylian Mbappe with one year left on his contract and Real Madrid 100% would look to that and say, look, our squad is so deep. We really only need to make one or two transfers. Here's $150 million for a player who's going to have his contract expire. And you got to think that that's the only eventual destination for Kylian Mbappe. Only logical step up, really, for Kylian Mbappe. I think if Mbappe joined Real Madrid, you might just have to shut up shop here at Corner Kick Media. But speaking of shutting up shop, that has been our show. Leeds United fans, congratulations. And you know what? While you're celebrating, and this goes for everyone, just wear a mask. For the love of God, do your duty. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. I've been Nick Vinden. I'm Caleb Rhodes. Nathan Strauss. And we will see you all next time.